3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. This is Priya in the studio with you, and I'm flying solo this morning. It is 7.02 and a half in the morning. Uh, that's not a very useful time check. Um, you know, a little reminder for folks, uh, it's a bit wet out, and um, for people that ride their bikes to commute, remember to slap that rear mudguard on, because I uh, didn't, so do as I do as I say and not as I did, uh, currently putting my rain jacket down on the seat so that I don't create a little miniature swamp in here for the next presenters. Anyway, too much information, but as usual, we have a massive show on for you today, and some of it is courtesy to some of our other excellent broadcasters at 3CR. So we're going to start off with a replay of a segment of Tuesday's episode of Dirt Radio featuring Tim from Blockade Australia and Isabel from Friends of the Earth discussing resisting Australia's climate destruction with organized disruption and the authoritarian response by the New South Wales police. And you can catch Dirt Radio on Tuesdays at 9.30 a.m. on 3CR. After that, we're going to hear back from this week's Doing Time show, where Marissa interviewed Felicity, a proud Naranjeri woman with lived experience of incarceration, about her participation in the Torch program. Felicity speaks about how she began learning more about her mob, culture, and art while participating inside, and her ongoing connection with the program from the other side of the prison walls as an in-community participant. And you can listen to Do In Time on Mondays from 4 to 5 p.m. on 3CR. After that, I'm really excited to announce that we're going to be joined by Kelly Rowe, the co-host of Footy Actually on Play On Radio, to talk about AFLW Season 7, which kicks off today with Carlton versus Collingwood, and the push for greater inclusivity in community sports. Now, Kel is a graphic designer with a background in creative communications and has combined this experience with her love of footy to inform her 5 to 9 as a local footy journalist, photographer, and podcaster. So really excited to talk about how Season 7 of the AFLW has built up this incredible space for fandom, participation, and celebration of the sport in a way that really kind of pushes the boundaries of the way that the AFLM, that's right, AFLM, has been restricted in the past. Um, and finally, we're going to be joined by Elle Gibbs, award-winning writer with a focus on disability and social issues, who speaks with us about systemic issues with disability employment services and breaks down current government approaches to disability employment in the lead-up to the September Jobs and Skills Summit. So, as usual, we've got a lot on for you today on 3CR, and I'm really excited to be doing the show with you this morning. Get your free ticket to the upcoming Forum for Dwelling Justice, an activist-driven event featuring speakers including Senator Lydia Thorpe, Debbie Kilroy, Rouge Amity, Whit Gari, and more. The Forum brings together grassroots activists and campaign groups to strengthen solidarity movements resisting ongoing colonial dispossession, housing injustice, incarceration, and poverty. 
The forum ends with film screenings and a discussion between Uncle Larry Walsh, the filmmakers, and guests with lived experience of homelessness, displacement, squatting, and public housing. The event will run from 1 to 7 p.m. on Friday, the 26th of August at the Capitol Theatre, 113 Swanson Street, Narm. Entry is by donation. Join us to identify the radical potential for resistance to dispossession and displacement in Narm. To register, head to cur.org.au forward slash events or check the 3CR website for details. The Forum for Dwelling Justice is brought to you by RMIT's Centre for Urban Research, a 3CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And these are the news headlines for Thursday, the 25th of August. Listeners, please be advised that the following headline does contain some distressing content regarding youth detention. And if you need to speak to anybody about this, you can call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. Documents released via Freedom of Information request have detailed graphic and concerning details about ongoing human rights issues in the Northern Territory's two youth detention centres. This includes the disturbing revelation of 139 incidents of self-harm and threats by juvenile detainees in the past financial year across Dondale and Alice Springs detention centres. Acting Northern Territory Children's Commissioner Nicole Hux described the situation as extremely concerning, noting that she had seen blood smeared on the walls during a visit to Dondale earlier this year. The Northern Territory Youth Justice Act specifies that observers, known as official visitors, must attend the Territory's two detention facilities monthly and report concerns to the Minister. However, between April 2021 and June 2022, only two visits were undertaken as part of the oversight program, leaving the Northern Territory government in breach of its own independent monitoring policy. The ABC has reported that some of the children detained across the two facilities are as young as 10 years old, predominantly Indigenous, and the vast majority are currently on remand awaiting court verdicts. In other news, Senate hearings held as part of an inquiry into a bill to abolish the controversial cashless debit card program have revealed that crime rates have increased or remain steady in trial areas. The Department of Social Services stated on Monday that an analysis of public data from state police services showed an increase in crime in cashless debit card sites, including Seduna, Alice Springs and Bundaberg in recent years. The program, which the Albanese government promised to scrap during the election, quarantines between 30 to 80 percent of welfare payments to a separate bank account, preventing this amount from being withdrawn as cash or used to purchase alcohol or gambling products. While members of the opposition have strongly opposed Labour's plan to abolish the card, participants and community advocates have argued that the program has not achieved its stated goals and it has instead resulted in an increase in social harm. And finally, in headlines, the federal Labor government has just moved to release 46,958 square kilometers of new ocean acreage for oil and gas exploration. Minister for Resources and Northern Australia Madeline King announced the decision yesterday to release 10 new offshore areas for bidding via the 2022 Offshore Petroleum Acreage Release. 
The move has sparked widespread backlash, with Green Senator Peter Wish Wilson labeling the move by Labour a mockery of its own weak climate target. While Minister King stated that opening new areas for exploration will, quote, play an important role in securing future energy supplies, end quote, the decision flies in the face of calls to divest from fossil fuels by climate justice advocates and experts and contradicts advice on urgent climate action and mitigation strategies outlined by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 25th of August, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. This month, Melbourne's beloved art house Cinema Nova turns 30 and is inviting you to celebrate. Revisit Cinema Nova favourites with a curated program of popular features that Melbourne movie lovers took to their hearts, including Parasite, Call Me By Your Name, Ligon Street, Si Parla Italiano, and more. Tickets on sale now. Cinema Nova, Melbourne's favourite independent cinema since 1992. A 3CR supporter. I thought we might go to a quick track before we head into our first segment for today's show. So this one is Fell in Love by Jess War. For the weekend, deep in Buddies outside in the tweaking Might get bucked in the West End Then do it back to my best friend What's your name, what's your sign, what's your rising I don't care what you're hiding People be fake, not surprising Who cares, who cares, I like it What's your son, what's your acting In your head, make a mad like madmen Don't trust anybody like many men So made like Batman, uh with a bad bitch, savage, classy, bougie, bad, not average. On my mind, like taxes. I throw a knife and a girl throw axes. Perfection, island dresses, all natural curves in. Take away yeah, all my stresses, relax and curves in. What's your name, what's your sign, what's your rising? I don't care what you're hiding. I got room and I like it, trust me, I like it. And your haters, I fight them. Got a bit of coin, that's a big dreams. Yeah, she's smart in the striptease. Feeling good from the minty. Got me lippy on the MD. I got soul, yes, plenty. I feel these people in the empty. Too rough, I move gently. Send it up when I test it. Uh, fell in love with a bad bitch, savage. Classy, bullshit, bad, not average. On my mind, like taxes. I throw a knife and I go out throw axes. Fell in love with a was fell in love by Jess War and whoops a little bit of a language warning uh retroactively but 
a banger, so, you know, who's to say how bad it really is? Anyway, we're going to jump into the first segment for today where we replay a section of Tuesday's episode of Dirt Radio featuring Tim from Blockade Australia and Isabel from Friends of the Earth discussing resisting Australia's climate destruction with organized disruption and the authoritarian response by New South Wales police. Let's head into that now. Good morning. I'm sitting here with Tim from Blockade Australia. We're going to have a little bit of a chat about um, the latest developments for BA up north and what's coming up. Um, Hey, Tim. Hi. How are you going? Yeah, good, good. Really nice to have you here. Thanks so much for making the time. Just maybe like a quick overview of what happened. 21 actions Mm. in the port of Newcastle and particularly targeting the um, bridge where all the coal trains travel into the, the um, largest coal port in the world. Um, it was um, definitely selected Newcastle for being a very palatable, easy to understand target. Mm. You know, bad thing, good people blocks bad thing. Yep. And um, there was some um, yeah, it was quite a radical range of tactics. People were setting up tripods. Um, I abseiled off the bridge and uh, tied my line off to the train line. The, I think Barnaby Joyce came out in a press conference that week and said yeah. we caused something to the effect of $120 million of delayed exports. Wow. Um, there was a huge outflow of support from the activist community, people mm. who really wanted to be involved and so yeah sort of escalated that to um a one week blockade of the port of newcastle uh, sorry the port of botany yeah in sydney it's the largest yep. container port in australia and uh did nine different actions that week mm. uh which resulted in a lot of disruption but also um two of our friends some germans mm. uh were deported from the country yeah um with ministerial discretion to create a bit of a, I guess, someone to blame. Yes. And another activist got uh, sentenced to prison for four months for climbing one of the um, ship stacking uh, container cranes yep. and got out on appeal after about two weeks. Mm. And I'm just interested to know, can you tell us a little bit, um, I suppose, about the theory of change of causing disruption in economically significant areas? Yeah, so the, I guess the, the strategy of Blockade Australia is uh, attempting to do something slightly different to a lot of the urban disruption um, we've seen lately, which is quite, I guess, government-focused yep. with specific demands. And I guess Blockade Australia... Like my interpretation of our theory of change is that Blockade Australia is trying to um, shift the political leverage away from the state in the form of, firstly, not asking the state to verify mm. our demands, but rather to shift political leverage to empowered groups of connected skilled and well-organised people to take action that directly targets the um, capitalist system as a whole by Mm. trying to put as much of a, um, I guess, um, statement out there Mm. in in economic terms 
Um, do you think that is the biggest point of, of difference that BA has as opposed to other climate movements or organisations that are, you know, doing, um, yeah, I suppose they have the same, the same long-term goals but very different tactics? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, Blockade Australia is trying to... Um, I don't necessarily think the biggest difference is the tactics mm. or the... Um, I guess the long-term goals, I'll agree with that, because um, Blockade Australia is just using tactics that are traditionally used in, I guess, industrial or um, forest environments and using them in urban contexts. But I think that um, what I see Blockade Australia is trying to do is to take offensive direct action, Mm -hmm. and a lot of people um, have come to us um, out of disillusion of constantly trying to fight things that have already been decided, mm. I guess, and we want to take, we want to empower people and take power away from the state so that they can't make those decisions in the first place. Yeah, and yep. um, being able to to have people skilled and connected and ready to um, respond to the systemic issue Mm. as a whole rather than on a single issue. I wanted to ask a little bit more personally now Um, so if you just want to tell us a little bit about um, what happened a few months ago Um, I suppose what were the goals for that what was the plan and then what ended up actually happening Um, specifically I'm just keen to hear about um, what your role was and how you felt you know, doing doing that and after everything that's happened. Blockade Australia has been doing mobilisations um, to uh, build momentum and capacity towards causing um, disruption uh, for a mobilisation that took place on the 27th of June in Sydney, um, where the, um, I guess, tactic or the, the, I guess, strategy, rather, was to um, temporarily um, halt economic activity at key bottlenecks in and around the CBD in mm-hmm. Sydney. In the week leading into the mobilisation, a handful of people were camping in the um, far west of Sydney. Yeah. We were... Um, picking up debris, cleaning out the river. We had um, fixed a lot of flood damage around the property, had um, propagated a lot of trees that had been destroyed, and there was um, a raid that that followed pretty mm. soon after, on the Sunday before the mobilisation. New South Wales police, we learned afterwards, mm. were surveilling the camp and a uh, number of police officers began trickling in, walking through the um, campground where people were sleeping. Mm. Um, and then, you know, slowly search and rescue showed up, the dog squad showed up, mm. riot squad showed up, and the um, the raptor squad showed up, which is the mm. um, highly armed sort of paramilitary sort of group in... New South Wales police that executes high-profile raids on mm. um, 
organized crime syndicates. The Raptor Squad encircled activists in a small area of the campsite. A pretty well-dressed group of men in suits showed up with clipboards and uh, iPads and mm. a book with faces of people on their watch list and wow. uh, began um, began the search. Mm. They uh, identified and searched everybody on site um, and um, identified a handful of people that they wanted to arrest on that day um, and I was one of the first of those people to be picked out of the bunch. Mm. We got shipped off to uh, Windsor Police Station, mm. refused bail, kept overnight, um, and uh, were transferred to a holding prison, a very, very putrid, horrific place in Emu Plains, mm. and um, had caught that following morning where um, we were, uh, where everyone was granted extraordinarily strict bail to um, essentially house arrest, being at a certain address, reporting to the police, not being able to associate with anyone in the group. And uh, two of us were um, accused of being the ringleaders of the operation and were charged with the heinous offence of aiding and abetting in the commission of a future crime. Whoa. And the crime they're alluding to is the um, the new laws that were passed after the botany mobilisation um, mm. that uh, made it illegal to block any major roadway in Sydney. My friend and I were... Um, refused bail by magistrate and remanded at uh, Park Lee Correctional Centre, maximum security, um, spent 17 days in isolation in the prison and spent the last six days of our term in uh, general population uh, with other people in the um, prison system Mm -hmm. and... um, very miraculously were granted bail by another magistrate, were released on the condition that we were pretty much only released because we had pled not guilty to all charges and were willing to leave New South Wales and so we were um, escorted Mm. back to our parents' houses by our parents from New South Wales Mm. and um, have been in Victoria on pretty restrictive bail conditions ever since and the mobilisation still went ahead a mm. number of disruptive street actions happened I think a total of about 31 people were arrested wow. all charged with the same thing mm. blocking a major roadway mm. and um, yeah, really restrictive bail conditions some people had to surrender their phone passcodes to police uh, some people have to report to the police station once a day Um, a lot of people weren't allowed to talk to their partners, weren't allowed to talk to their siblings. Mm. And, um, yeah, effectively, um, no one from Blockade Australia is allowed to um, directly contact or go near each other. Um, 
without breaching bail, which would most likely lead to people being remanded until their court dates. Yeah. Um, I suppose where where do we go from here? You're talking about non-association lists, communities torn apart, partners, siblings. Um, and so Blockade Australia continues and have been doing some incredible work. So tell us a little bit about where we're going from here. Yeah, so I think the thing that the state has a hard time wrapping their head around is the idea of um, decentralisation mm-hmm. and distributed organising. Um, there's nothing planned in terms of actions at the mm-hmm. moment, but what has happened is um, a pretty feeble and, you know, petty attempt to identify the, like, leaders mm. of the organisation has, you know, taken a lot of people like myself out of doing pretty much anything, but mm. there is still a movement happening and it's growing mm. and it's getting bigger. Amazing. Um, the, the, um, there's been a coalition of um, climate and different um, activist groups um, who have very publicly supported Blockade Australia. Um, the Greens have been very vocal about the injustice of the situation, the um, the clampdown that's happening on activists. Mm. Um, Blockade Australia still exists. There's still new people taking part every day. Mm. There's local meetups happening a lot. There's a lot of community building, a lot of uh, cross-movement communication happening. Uh, a lot of really good conversations are happening between groups that haven't spoken in a professional context for a while, mm. and I think um, I think the the sort of indiscriminate attack on activism as a whole across this continent has brought the movement together. There was a, a united a united rally that happened in Melbourne a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, mm-hmm. um, that was co-organised by, I think, 10 or 12 different um, climate and um, anti-colonial groups who are, who previously have very different theories of how change happens in society. Yeah. Um, united together in you know, a display of solidarity that I've not seen in the climate movement. And that's, uh, I don't think, something that would have happened if the state wasn't putting the thumb down so hard on mm. people who struggle to sleep because of how much they fear the destruction of country and the destruction of the environment and the mm. well-being of people. And so it's been really galvanising you don't necessarily have to, you know, join Blockade Australia and climb tripods to yep. take part in the movement, but also there's a lot of people who are just coming along cooking for people and yep. there's really, really great community activities happening everywhere um, and there's been people who have seen it overseas. Mm. Um, there was um, quite a lot of people in Europe who were pretty keenly following Blockade Australia over the last year who have reached out and expressed their solidarity. Mm. I think there was a solidarity action that happened in Germany. That's pretty incredible. 
when the um, blockade Australia repression was happening yeah. around the time of the raid and the initial actions. And, um, yeah, I think there's a coming together of not just the movement but other movements too, like refugee groups and, yeah. um, I guess, civil rights groups, First Nations groups, yeah. and climate groups, anti-capitalist groups. Mm. I wanted to say thank you... Thanks for making the time, but also thanks for sharing. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.30 in the morning, and you just heard a segment of Tuesday's episode of Dirt Radio featuring Tim from Blockade Australia and Isabel from Friends of the Earth, who discussed resisting Australia's climate destruction with organised disruption and the authoritarian response by New South Wales Police. You can catch Dirt Radio on Tuesdays at 9.30 a.m. on 3CR. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. And you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And I thought we might head to another track. This one is Opportunity by Caution and P. Nona. They grabbed me and my older brother, you know, out of, you know pull us out of the car. Try to hang on to our sister. Instead of a childhood filled with love, safety and joy... Joy's fraught with pain, grief, and anger. So it's brutal, all we can hear is a scream and from our, you know, uncles and aunties and cousins. And when they took us in there, they shut the gate. And all we can hear is going up the road, our, our younger sisters crying for us. The boys worked for food and were given numbers in place of names. They told us that, um, forget about a name, forget about a culture. Forget about our spirituality. You're not black, you're white. You're not Richard Campbell, you're 28. Can you feel my pain? Cause I don't think you do. All you want from me is to be shut down and bruised. Bruised. For my people to be shut down and bruised. Can you feel my pain? Cause I don't think you do. All you want from me is to be shut down and bruised. Bruised. For my people to be shut down and bruised. I'm an alternate, ultimate achiever Cold enough to send a chill and get fevers to no believers And we get down crazy if you don't believe us Top the stomp a head off, this is a kick and they get Adidas Mixing in with Whitby, half cost perfect The percentage of damage was many points engaging Intriguing perhaps, the meaning of life Indeed it'd be nice to know for a kid in need of these raps Crop affected, the drops lost first, pick nothing's left Industry chooses to be greedy till there's nothing kept Don't be obsessive, our success is the backbone What life is it what it needs to be until we back Home. And they say homies with the hardest Marvelous, pretentious accolades for following a fellow artist If the followers to be led I'd rather be dead than copy During my time you never seen me sloppy Break a leg or a neck Trying to tell me that you great yet Prove along the way to respect is or die a great death Makes me think Same blood that's horses through my veins Was for long tip Oldest culture that happy came First the show You don't know Don't try to take action Smite me in the name of satisfaction Relevant Seeing the way they took our land for rigid prisoners Killed that people and reclaimed Australia for an interest I should have saved Spoken word and creative Right in the early way For them to 
too past them or past mistakes. Life is great, we still feeling it. And no matter what happens alone, I'm always down for the stakes. It's flaws, I stray away. Still staring from those that call it Australia Day. Don't know the very meaning of the soul that they walk across. I guess that parliament of the only ones to judge and make a mistake. Can you feel my pain? Cause I don't think you do what you want from me. Cause to be shut down the We're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR, 8.55 a.m. And that was Opportunity by Caution and Pinona. And Caution is a Gamilare, Dangari, and Gumbunja man and a real powerhouse in the Aussie hip-hop space, up-and-coming artist. Highly recommend you go back and listen to some more of his tracks. And, of course, we will have a link to how you can catch some more of Caution's music in our show notes. And now we're going to go to our next segment. So on this week's Doing Time show, Marissa interviewed Felicity, a proud Naranjari woman with lived experience of incarceration, about her participation in the Torch program. So Felicity spoke about how she began learning more about her mob, culture, and art while participating inside and her ongoing connection with the program from the other side of the prison walls as an in-community participant. Now, Felicity, I'm wondering if you could just first of all um, describe, talk about, talk to us about what land you're from, and then talk a little bit about the torch and how it's helped you. Sure. So um, I'm another city woman from South Australia. Um, uh, my my connection comes through uh, my my mother's mum, so my maternal grandmother, um, and prior to uh, getting you know, introduced to the torch, there there was only a limited amount of information that I had of my my history, my family, my people. Um, so that's where the torch came in and actually really opened up my eyes and helped me connect to who I am. Um, uh, so I was uh, in prison. I've done five sentences, so it was during my last sentence, my longest one that I um, that I learned who the torch was and um, uh, engaged with the participant and uh, really got stuck into it all. Fantastic. And so, so you've had lived experience from prison and now you're doing like an arts program? 
or you're, you're doing art yourself? Yeah, exactly. So um, the program, you start as a participant whilst you're inside um, and you can um, put in requests for some um, resources. Like they put together these resource booklets about each person's mob, um, any other kind of request like about your totem, about um, language, things like that. So that was a massive, um, that was, that was massive for me because I didn't get to see my grandma when I was inside and she passed away not long after I got out. So um, I learned a lot through through the um, things that they uh, gave me, the resource booklets. Um, and once uh, once I got out, I stayed in contact with the torch and continued on as an in-community participant. Um, and I got to... I still do do my art. Um, we have uh, the Melbourne Art Fair on at the moment, which I've actually got a couple of pieces in. Um, and this year's Confined, which is our, uh, the biggest yearly exhibition that the Torch holds, um, I was actually selected as the promotional image, my artwork um, called Tidalic. That was the promotional image for this year's exhibition. So that was pretty, pretty special. It is very special. I'm so glad. And it's, you know, Felicity, it's, it's always good because... Um, you know, there have been a lot of large numbers of women in prison and also um, Indigenous people as well, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, as, as, it, as it's so commonly said, we're overrepresented. You know, we're, what, 3% 3, 3 of the Australian population, but we're over, I think it's over 30% of the prison population. Um, so that, you know, just kind of puts it into perspective, I guess. And, um, and... In, in, the, in the torch, um, there's obviously more men than women, um, but yeah, we kind of really, really get into it, um, and it's something that since I've been out, and a lot of other participants will probably attest to this as well. It's a it's a healthy coping mechanism that we didn't have beforehand. Like painting, it's so therapeutic and healing and calming, and you know, it's one of my go-tos now that I don't have those unhealthy ways of dealing with things, thankfully. Um, so, yeah, it's, it helps in so many different aspects and I, I can imagine life without it now. Oh, for sure. I mean, it, it sounds like, I mean, from what I've been reading about The Torch, it, it helps um, artists to, to reconnect with culture and, and earn income from, from art sales, which you deserve with 100% of the artwork price um, going directly to the artist because sometimes I'm a little bit sceptical about, um, you know, Indigenous art and the fact that sometimes it doesn't go directly to the artist. So this is wonderful. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, you know, uh, since, uh, since getting involved in art and things like that, I've done some research, which I, I didn't know anything about the art industry um, beforehand. And, yeah, you won't find another another um, organisation like it 100%. And since I've been out, um, I actually... When I was inside, I started studying um, a business degree and I did my first year accounting unit when I was inside. Once I got outside, um, that kind of got put on hold with COVID and um, I actually had, uh, I've got two, two sons now, but, um, you know, it's been crazy, you know, expanding my family. But um, once I got out, I was offered a position as an um, accounts and operations assistant. So I'm on maternity leave at the moment, but I've been working there ever since. So it's a really full circle kind of thing. And this year's International Women's Day, I actually got to go back in prison through the front doors this time. I'm up at Tarangawa 
Karangawa, the women's prison. Oh, yeah. And I got to sit down, have a yarn with all the women and um, tell them how life's been for me. And um, it was so it was so amazing. It's something that I'll remember for, forever because being in prison, all you hear and see are people that you know or have gotten out and then things have gone wrong and, well, you know, one, one reason or another they've relapsed or uh, reoffended and come back into prison. So you just see... Um, you don't hear as many success stories. So to be able to be that for the women, that was massive. It is massive. And I, look, for me, I'm finding it really refreshing being able to connect with with a woman um, who's had lived experience from, from prison and is able to... to and, and is being an artist. Because you're right, it's, a, lot of it is, a lot of them are men. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's so many, so many, too many prisoners full stop. But um, yeah, majority, majority of men. Um, but yeah, fantastic. And are you are you a member of the Stolen Generation? No, not me. My grandmother um is or was. Uh, yeah, she was. Um, and some of the there's a lot that you know she took to yeah. the grave with her. But um, uh, it's some of the things that. I know that she went through. Yeah, crazy. But you're still you 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 would you would still be taking on that transgenerational trauma. You're a descendant. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's weird how it um, comes through as well because you know, my grandmother, she, oh yeah. So she, a lot of a lot of our culture, um, she was forced to hide. Um, she couldn't you know, share and stuff like that. So I kind of had to really dig out of her um, because that was her normal of not sharing it. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it does get, get passed down. Absolutely. So the torch, where does it come, who funds it? Um, so it's funded, um, so it's a non-for-profit organisation and it's funded uh, Justice, um, are a large large donor um, yeah. and main, main, most of our funding I think comes through uh, philanthropic yep um, uh, sorry I can't it's hard to that's say. okay um, tongue twister uh, so yeah, just donations donations and um, grants okay. okay so it's yeah. not from corrections oh uh, yeah so some does come from yeah justice corrections um, wow certainly certainly not not all of it Definitely no, I get it. it. No, no, it's always good to know. Look, it, it doesn't really matter as long as the the, the torch is is helping people, you know, from yeah. prison particularly. And it's not just even about prison; it's also about, you know, um, looking at looking at country and and culture. So this is just made up of First Nations people, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, Aboriginal Great. and um, Torres Strait Islander peoples, yeah, as, as well. Felicity, I've just so enjoyed your company, and it's really, really important for women in prison to be to be represented on our show. And I don't mean that in tokenism. I mean, I mean that very sincerely. That we we need to have more women. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Good on you, Felicity. Have a great week. You too. Bye. 
And you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And you just heard Marissa on this week's Do and Time show interviewing Felicity, who's a proud Naranjari woman with lived experience of incarceration, about her, her participation in the Torch program. And Felicity spoke about how she began learning more about her mob, culture, and art while participating inside and her ongoing connection with the program from the other side of the prison walls as an in-community participant. And you can catch Do and Time on 3CR on Mondays from 4 to 5 p.m. And now we're going to go into an interview with Kelly Rowe, co-host of Footy Actually on Play On Radio, who joins us to talk about AFLW Season 7 kicking off today and the push for greater inclusivity in community sports. And Kel is a graphic designer with a background in creative communications and has combined this experience with her love of footy to inform her 5 to 9 as a local footy journalist, photographer and podcaster. Kelly, good morning. Hey, Priya. How are you going? Good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, going well. Pretty excited about tonight. Oh, my gosh. So exciting. Um, you're going to be there? I'm going to be there. Uh, I, as much as I would love to be there, it actually clashes with my um, local footy final prep. So we're watching from the club rooms tonight. Oh, incredible. I mean, I think it's still, you have that um, that atmosphere of having, I guess, maybe just played a game um, or just played a, a, a practice match, a scratchy, um, and then watching um, watching the first game of the season. It is so exciting. Um, and, of course, yeah. you know, this year, is probably going to be the only year where we have the bonus of two two seasons in one year. Um, yeah, it's um, it's a bit of a spoiler. Yeah. Um, so uh, obviously, uh, you have your own journey through community sport, which informs your love of footy and your interest in, in you know doing this community broadcasting about football. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about your journey in community football, in broadcasting about it, and how you did develop that love of AFL. Yeah, absolutely. So I played footy as a kid growing up in Brisbane. I did kick and I played a bit at school. But I fell out of the sport because of lack of opportunities and pathways. And so I guess fast forward to a few years ago, uh, I'd moved to Melbourne for work and a friend actually took me to an AFLW game. Uh, it was Dogs vs. the Cats at Whitnoble. And I was just so completely in awe of it. So that next week, that same friend dropped me off to training with a local team and that was it. I was just absolutely hooked. And I think um, after one season, that love really only continued to grow. So I, I joined the club committee I look after my club social media, and in the last year, I sort of started writing as a volunteer league reporter for my competition. Um, my day job, as you mentioned, is, is a graphic designer, and I've worked in creative commons for a while. But once I started playing footy, my gravitation towards that women in sports media and broadcasting space was pretty natural. Yeah, awesome. And I mean, like, you know, you have that experience where you are getting in there, being engaged in training and playing in the comps, and it's sort of... Um, it's really exciting, I think, to see – this is not really something that we see as much in in the sort of AFL, like, men's competition where current players are commentating. I mean, they might come in for particular games. But I really like that in the AFLW and also in community sports, there's a lot of engagement of active players um, in, in sports analysis and commentary. Um, so – AFLW Season 7, as we've mentioned, kicks off tonight with Carlton playing Collingwood, and we've now got all 18 AFL clubs represented. So I was hoping you could speak to what this process of league expansion has shown us about this clear appetite for elite women's sport, because, of course, there has been, uh, you know, 
the the disparaging comments that we've seen on social media about things, but it's really been drowned out by a huge amount of excitement. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's it's really exciting to be at this historic point where we've got all eighteen clubs fielding both men's and women's teams. And I think the speed at which that has eventuated really speaks to the demand for it. I think expansion can feel a bit painful, you know, with fan favourites moving clubs and the makeup of teams fundamentally changing. But it's really also exciting to see the opportunities that it presents as well. Because I think, you know, with more teams, we see more opportunities for athletes to play at the highest level. Um, but obviously a whole new legion of fans to get around their favourite clubs now that they have that full complement. And I think, you know, despite the challenges presented in recent years, the growth of the sport really continues to be paralleled by that growth of audience as well. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger. I, I don't know. I'm I'm really excited to see how this season plays out with all 18 clubs on the books and, you know, also go baggers. <laughs> yeah, I think like it is. I I remember like I had a conversation with Dr. Casey Simons and Marnie Vinyl, who's a sports reporter, and um, we were talking about how different the fan space is in the in the AFLW as well, and the sort of opportunities um, for I guess like a much healthier mode of participation um, and engagement with the sport. Uh, that that provides in terms of, you know, allowing people to come and be recognized as fans as they are rather than having to sort of change who they are to engage with the sport or bracket off parts of their identities. Um, you know, I feel like if we if we ditched all the queer players in the AFLW, then we wouldn't have many players <laughs> left. Yeah, it's a, it's a really special space um, and, and something quite unique, I think, to women's sport. Yeah, and I mean, it is... Um, you know, it, it's wonderful seeing this expansion and the enthusiasm for the sport. But, you know, there's clearly uh, still a lot of work to be done to, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, level the playing field. Um, and I was hoping that you might be able to speak to some of those things that do need to, to change still, both inside the AFL itself, you know, with respect to things like full professionalization, but also in terms of gender dynamics and bias uh, in, in commentary, in analysis, and also outside in terms of some of those neg- challenging negative stereotypes and barriers to participation. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I think like you mentioned, full professionalization really is key. And huge steps have been made this year alone with the expansion and with the collective bargaining agreement. I think the average wage increase for for players out of the newly negotiated CBA is about 94%, which goes a long way to an athlete's ability to stay engaged at, elite, at an elite level, but it's still part-time and they're still having to find that balance between footy and life. Um, I do think that expansion removes one argument that the league can't be fully professional until all clubs have a women's team. Mm. It's a no-brainer, really, like invest in the women's league, make it full-time, and it can only continue on its upward trajectory. Uh, I think sometimes, like, imagine if... Erin Phillips didn't ever have to step away from footy. Imagine if she had a complete pathway mm-hmm. supported by a full-time contract to play the sport she loves from day dot. That, that's really an exciting thought. And I think we're kind of on the precipice of that now. Um, the pathways are there, so now let's just add the, the investment. Um, yeah. I also I also think professionalisation adds an extra layer of legitimacy to the competition. Um, and you sort of touched on it before about the sort of negative comments that come up around the standard of the game and the players' skill and abilities. I think fans of the game know that it's different for the men's game and they celebrate it for that. Um, but there's always a bit of noise from those not open to the point of difference that the women's game offers. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think in, in terms of, um, 
you know, the women and gender diverse people playing the game at the elite level, they're already smashing stereotypes and breaking down barriers. Um, but there, I think that there are still more opportunities to be more inclusive and engage more people in the game. I think I'd love to see that reflected at all levels of footy, greater representation of the diversity in our communities, uh, be it your cultural background, your gender, your sexuality or your ability. I think one of the cornerstones of the FLW is that notion of you can't be what you can't see. And I guess I'd love to see that expanded on more so. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that, you know, even in, in the short time that the AFLW, you know, like league comp has been happening, we've already seen that make, you know, leaps and bounds in progress compared to the men's competition. Um, and I think it, it really is sort of about trying to build all of that in from the ground up than have, like, rather than having to come back and retroactively make changes um, to, you know, tack on inclusivity initiatives, but to, to be considering all of that from the jump. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I guess returning to the community level, I also thought I might ask about some of your thoughts on Victoria's fair access policy road roadmap for community sports infrastructure, which launched earlier this month. Um, what is set to change with this and how do you hope that this will actually start changing access to support, uh, sorry, to sport for women and gender diverse people, but from people uh, with a variety of different intersecting identities as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think the roadmap's a really exciting prospect. Uh, it's set to build this foundation of fair access across all community sports um, in Victoria. So from uh, July 2024, all Victorian councils need to ensure that fair access to sporting facilities. So things like training times, locations, change rooms um, for people of all genders. Otherwise, they aren't eligible to receive infrastructure funding. Um, basically, I think, I think it's a really exciting directive for change. And it's the kind of change for the better that benefits everyone with that end goal to kind of increase participation and improve the experience of women and gender diverse people in the in community sport. Um, you know, like it's it's not something that just happens overnight. It's, it has three phases and it's sort of designed to help everyone along the path to genuinely achieving welcoming, safe and inclusive sporting environments. And that's not just as players, it's also in coaching, administration, leadership and governance roles. I'm really fortunate to be involved in a community club that's already on its way to achieving some of the goals set out in the roadmap. But like most, most things, there's still challenges and there's always opportunities for improvement and for reflection. So I'm really looking forward to seeing the benefits of this initiative unfold. Yeah, of course. And I mean, I don't want to uh, put you on the spot too much here because I know I didn't ask about this earlier, but I do, <laughs> I do kind of want to um, maybe get your thoughts before we wrap up about um, how people might you know, engage in, in, in community sport if they're, if they're interested in getting into footy, um, especially people who hadn't had the opportunity previously, who don't have a background in the sport, because I've seen some of my friends, um, who hadn't previously played football or had only played it at a junior level and then stepped away for a long time, uh, start engaging in footy more as adults and, you know, with all of the various identities that they embody finally being valued in some of these spaces, of course, with some change to go. So for folks that are thinking about engaging in these spaces, do you have any advice? Yeah, absolutely. I actually just wrote an article for the Westsider about this. Um, specifically about women and, and non-binary folk who've come to the sport as adults, not really having experience in, in it before. Um, certainly in my experience, uh, seeing players join my football team who who have 
almost trying the sport for the first time. Like I, I always have so much admiration for that because I think it's a really scary thing as an adult to try something new and, and make yourself a bit vulnerable, um, especially without having any background in it. So um, I think most most teams are really excited to welcome that and have people kind of come into the fold and, and build the culture and add to the culture around their teams. Everyone uh, in my team this year who's come along without any any sort of footy background has really brought something new and different. Um, and so just as much as they're learning a sport uh, and, and learning how to play the game, uh, I think, you know, we kind of get to teach each other as well. So it's a really special thing. It can be really scary, but definitely worth putting yourself out there. Yeah, that's awesome. And it makes me feel, you know, it makes me feel really excited about, you know, when I think about the younger members of our family, like, you know, daughters of some of my relatives being able to um, see themselves represented, I guess, on the big stage, but also having greater opportunities to start engaging with the sport if they want to from a very young age. Um, so super exciting. I'm so keen about tonight's game. And um, <laughs> look, where can people catch your show and some of the analysis that you do? Excellent. Yeah, you can catch Woody actually on all the usual pod platforms. We'll be back in your ears after round one, recapping all the action from the weekend of the footy. So you can follow at Play on Radio Melb on Twitter to keep up with the weekly podcast released during the season. I'm really pumped to get back into it. I'm pumped for my finals and, and I'm just generally pumped for footy. So looking forward to it. Amazing. Well, Kel, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today on 3CR and I hope you have a brilliant day. And thanks very much for having me. And that was Kelly Rowe, the co-host of Footy Actually on Play On Radio, who joined me to talk about AFLW Season 7, which kicks off tonight, and the push for greater inclusivity in community sports. Kel's a graphic designer with a background in creative communications and has combined this experience with her love of footy to inform her 5 to 9 as a local footy journalist, photographer, and podcaster. Um, and, uh, yeah, shout out to all AFLW fans who are going to be watching the Pies versus the Baggers tonight. That's right. So exciting. Um, can't believe that AFLW season has come round again. But, of course, by moving the season times, it means that this might be the only time we get two seasons in one year. So I say uh, make the most of those memberships, folks. Hi, my name's John A. Tate, and I've collected hundreds of songs about footy and sport. So we've put together a program called The Sporting Record. Hang on, it's not all about your records, John A. Em and I are also here to cast a critical 3CR eye over all things sport. Join John, James and me every Thursday at 4pm for The Sporting Record, right here on 855 3CR. Kicking off on Thursday, August 25th at 4 o'clock. The Seoul Masni Centre for Performing Arts and Monica Singh Sanman present a year-long season of solo and group Odyssey dance performances on Saturday, September 17th and 24th at Dance House and October 1st at Fairfield Amphitheatre. All shows will be accompanied by our live Odyssey Music Ensemble. Odyssey is an Indian classical dance style that is both traditional and contemporary in its intrinsic nature. Join us for what can only be described as a pilgrimage where the dancer and musicians merge together as co-performers. 
Tickets available via our website, sohamasmi.org. This project has been financially supported by Regional Arts Victoria and Creative Victoria. We also acknowledge Dance House, Multicultural Arts Victoria and 3CR Community Radio as supporters in this endeavour. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 8.01 in the morning. And I'm joined now by Elle Gibbs, award-winning writer with a focus on disability and social issues to discuss some of the systemic issues with disability employment services and to break down current government approaches to disability employment in the lead up to the September Jobs and Skills Summit. Elle, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Priya. No worries at all. It is uh, great to be speaking with you again. I love that um, I, you know, I'm able to reach out to you whenever I need to um, have a chat and figure out exactly what's going on in this space because you provide such excellent analysis. That's right. Follow L Gibbs on Patreon. Um, but yeah, I thought we might start off with a discussion about the state of the dis- of, of disability employment services, given that government's recent announcement that. 52 of the 104 DES providers will be having their services reduced or discontinued as of this past Sunday, with eight of these closing completely. And this occurred off um, a performance assessment for disability management services and employment support services. So this is obviously a big change. I'm wondering what some of the issues were that were identified in this performance assessment. Yes, it's a little bit. So in 2018, there were a big review of DES providers because they, funnily enough, weren't working and weren't getting people with disability into work. So there's a huge review, lots of changes happened. Supposedly, there was to be this more individualised support service. Everything was going to be fantastic. A bunch of disabled people and disability organisations strongly dissented at the time and said, these reforms are terrible and they're not going to work particularly for people with significant support needs, so people with intellectual disability, autistic people, um, yeah. So so we come to last year and Luke uh, Henry Gomez from The Guardian, uh, through a Freedom of Information, found a mid-review document done by Boston Consulting Group that found, surprise, surprise, it was all a disaster. And they found that um, the likelihood of someone getting work had declined after the reforms by up to 14%, and the cost had gone up uh, from $27,000 to $38,000 in two years. So the reforms didn't work to get disabled people into work, but they did work in terms of increased profits for the providers. So the new government's come in. There's been this big process last year about reform, lots of submissions. Everyone's been talking about what needs to be done. The providers have pushed back really hard on the reforms and said, oh, no, we've got to take longer, we've got to, you know, have more time. So the new government's come in and said, right, we're going to do this shiny thing, we'll cut down eight providers, get rid of them, cut down a few more. But they haven't released the details on exactly what parts of this big change they're going to do. And I suspect they're going to push out any real changes uh, that might actually help disabled people uh, for much longer. Yeah, and I mean, I think this is also just like one of those classic examples of um, various governments saying, look, we've poured a heap of money into this. Why isn't it working? The problem must be the people that are accessing the services rather than the whole systemic service architecture itself. And now uh, coming in and making these these cuts to servicing, it really, 
you know, it seems fairly haphazard. I'm not sure if, if that, um, if that's the right term for it, but, um, to just sort of, you know, come in and say, here's a, here's a simple fix, but without, you know, providing a more comprehensive outline of what's going to happen or, you know, listening to disabled people, uh, when they talk about, a lot of the longer standing issues and structural issues around employment access. So could you speak to some of the effects that these closures might have and perhaps link this into how issues with DES fit within this context of a fundamentally dysfunctional job search or employment search provider model and social security system? Because we know that um, obviously this, this profit skimming that's been happening with, with DES providers is, is something that happens across the system as well. Yeah. And, you know, just before I start on that, just to be really clear about, you know, some of the really big for-profit providers like ATM, for example, didn't get touched in any of these changes. Mm-hmm. So no matter their outcomes. So, yeah, so there's 15,000 disabled people who are on the books of these services that have been closed or changed and they have to find another provider. And the government has said they'll get a text message. Um, but there really does need to be much better support for them in terms of, transitioning because of the whole mutual obligation stuff. Mutual obligations have been suspended for two months, which I think gives the government saying, oh, we recognise that we're not doing this very well and it might take a while for people to find a new provider. Um, But look, the whole punitive model of these providers is actually about enforcing so-called mutual obligations, so which are nothing mutual about them at all. It's all about um, forcing people into arbitrary and ineffective programs, um, usually run by the same DES providers that are running the enforcement, um, to actually get their meagre income support. So, I mean, that's what the whole privatised job model is all about for both people on JobSeeker but also on other payments. And, you know, keeping in mind that half the people who are on JobSeeker payment are disabled people. So... Mm. You know, this is all about a privatised enforcement model to make people, you know, do work for the doll, to do training programs that benefit the DES providers, um, all of that kind of stuff. So they don't provide people with work and they don't provide people with long-term support, particularly um, groups of people who are significantly excluded from the labour market. So I've done a bit of work around people with intellectual disability Less than, I think it was seven or eight percent of people who use DES are people with intellectual disability. And apart from literally one provider, one DES provider, everybody else gets absolutely terrible outcomes and can't get people jobs, don't support people into work and don't use the evidence to um, actually make sure that people can succeed in the labour market. So it's a really terrible situation when you've got one provider who can do the job in the whole of Australia. And the rest are just like, nah. So yeah, I'm, I'm, as you can hear, I'm pretty cranky about it because we keep repeating this same cycle. You know, we do a reform, the providers get everything that they want and disabled people are listened to. The government goes, right, fantastic. A couple of years into the reform, whoops, it doesn't work. Exactly what disabled people said would happen has happened. We'll do another round of reform, rinse and repeat. Are you telling me that repeated inquiries are not actually the way to go with this <laughs> and that perhaps we have all of the information that we already need from disabled people? Um, I mean, it it really, these systemic issues that you've touched on also obviously intersect with, you know, just like a widespread culture of ableism in workplace environments. So beyond just the 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 providers and um you know what it means to access uh des services uh there's also the 
these issues uh, within a culture that devalues disabled people, that also doesn't recognize that some people, uh, you know, won't fit into these uh, the options of employment that are available to them and that, um, you know, people's lives need to be valued and people need a livable income, regardless of whatever kind of quote unquote contribution they can be seen to, to make. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm wondering with all of that in mind, could you tell us a bit about the government choosing to silo disabled people's concerns and voices away from the Jobs and Skills Summit, which is going to be held uh, on the 1st and 2nd of September in Parliament House? Uh, because I, I believe uh, Minister Shorten is going to be organizing a, a separate meeting in the lead up to this event. But surely disability should be an integrated consideration rather than thought about separately. Yeah, now be one or two disabled people at the main job summit which is due to a lot of disabled people jumping up and down going hello and um, so yeah Shorten held a jobs and skills forum as he called it last week and it was one of about 50 or so different roundtables that are happening across a range of industries but it was the only one that included disabled people so you've got all of these other sectors and industries meeting and talking but we're excluded, of course. So there was a forum that was held, and it did hear from a range of disabled people, including people with intellectual disability, which is fantastic. And, you know, again, came up with ideas, which is really good, uh, to bring to the main job summit. But I think the lack of ideas isn't the problem. You know, we are 15% of the working age population, and yet... Um, half of us still live in poverty. And, you know, those kind of statistics about us being part of the workforce haven't changed for 30 years. So whatever we've been doing for 30 years isn't working. So um, I think what we actually need is the proposals on the table that use the levers of government to actually affect change. So one of the things um, <laughs> for this, since the Disability Employment Australia uh, Conference, the Disability Employment Australia is like the peak body for not-for-profit DES providers, mm -hmm. and they asked me to come and talk at their conference, which, you know, as the MC said, went down like a cold shower. Um, and I said that all, de all everyone who gets a dollar from the government uh, to deliver something for disability should have a mandatory quota of 15% employment mm -hmm. at every level of disabled people. Now, it caused a degree of controversy because the, all of these providers, there were only a few who could actually answer that they employed disabled people in their organisations. So you've got organisations delivering billions of dollars of disability services, and yet we don't get a single dollar of that. So that's a big lever the government could pull right now and at the job summit to actually affect change and get more of us actually to work and just start to change the culture of these organisations. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's really about disrupting that power dynamic as well, like just fundamentally within these organizations, uh, you know, rather than saying, oh, you know, it's, it's run by non-disabled people, we employ non-disabled people, and we're providing services for disabled people. It's really about making sure that, you know, you're, you're an employment services provider. How can you not internally be providing employment for disabled people and have disabled people leading the conversations within your organisation. Yeah, 100%. And I think that kind of stuff, you know, 15% is a kind of minimum amount. Like, I've been the only disabled person in a room a number of times, and it's really not fun when you're the only person raising these things. You're the only person with the lived expertise of talking about discrimination and experiencing discrimination, you know, and yet there's a whole bunch of non-disabled people, to, you know, talking about disability as though they really understand. And, you know, but having um, 
you know, I mean, up to 50% of rooms talking about disability should be disabled people Mm -hmm. because it really does, as you say, change the power dynamic and it shifts it from, you know, non-disabled expertise, so-called expertise, telling us poor disabled people what we need to do and actually reflects that we know the answers. Yeah, of course. And, I mean, speaking on that, you recently wrote about government's approach to employment for disabled people and really gestured to that cynicism of repeated inquiries, further research, that kind of thing, rather than acting on what disabled people have actually said they want and need for a very long time. So what are some of the most pressing issues, apart from what you've mentioned about employment quotas, that need to be addressed by the Albanese government going forward to actually create some tangible change? Look, there's a couple of really, and they're not easy, but there are some things the government could actually do. What I said about the 15% um, of employment quotas, they could fix the Disability Discrimination Act, um, they could end mutual obligations and this punitive job agency regime, um, change the taper rates and earning thresholds for income support so people can keep more of what they earn, um, make employers have to provide accommodations and adjustments at work and make that yeah, make that happen. Um, commit to paying disabled workers at least the minimum wage, including those who work in sheltered workshops. Mm-hmm. Um, creating more jobs for people with intellectual disabilities specifically, because uh, they are so often left out when we talk about employment. Um, and employ disabled people in the government departments that actually make policy about mm-hmm. us. So, you know, give these things some teeth, um, give us the disability strategy some teeth and some resources to make it bite. You know, so often we make these strategies and then there's no enforcement, there's no implementation, there's no um, actual resources behind it to make it happen. Yeah, and by setting, uh, by setting really vague targets or ambiguous targets, then, it, you know, you can really shape any result to fit sort of the broad rubric of uh, um, of success, um, which, you know, I think really needs to change because you need to be able to have these concrete goals and to be able to tick those off rather than to say, look, we made a gesture towards potentially looking into this a bit more and now we've started putting some thought into maybe looking into it and so that counts as progress rather than actually tangibly changing things on the ground. Um, But also, like you said, not everybody can work mm -hmm. and should work. So I'm really... I want to make sure that, you know, as part of this conversation, that we make sure that income support, you know, job seeker disability support pension is a livable amount and that people aren't expected to live in absolute poverty uh, because they can't get into the way, they can't work. So um, I've had long periods of time where I can't work and I was, you know, relying on income support. And I think it's really important that that is an equal part of this conversation. Yeah, Yeah, of course. And, uh, you know, with that comes... uh, really cracking down on uh, rolling back the the prohibitive sort of requirements for, for access for the disability support pension as well, because, you know, as you did mention, um, so many people that are currently on the job seeker payment are disabled, but, you know, don't meet that uh, ridiculous threshold for access. Um, so finally, where can listeners find out more about some of the issues that we've been discussing? Keep up to date with your own writing and, you know, support pushes for change in this space. Yeah, so um, if you're interested in my stuff, um, it's on my website, lgibbs.com.au, and I have a Patreon as well. Um, I had an article out yesterday in The Guardian, which was nice, uh, talking about something completely different than that employment. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I think there's uh, Pro Bono News is doing a good job of covering some of these things from uh, the perspective of disabled people. 
Um, but yes, there's a lot of providers in the and businesses bleaking in the news that they can't possibly employ us, but uh, we know that that is absolute garbage. <laughs> I was going to use another word. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And I think um, you know your your website, but also your social media is, has also been like a fantastic roundup of a lot of these concerns. Um, and I think. You know, this is also an example of just listening to disabled people and listening to the analysis that is being put out and just amplifying that and, and putting, uh, you know, putting our support behind that, you know, for yeah. non-disabled people listening as well. The centre is the one that is doing great work around this stuff and is um, part of these conversations and processes. So oh. give them a follow on socials. Um, and I'm at Blunt Shovel. Yes, excellent. And we'll be putting all of those links in our show notes. Look, Elle, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me this morning. I really appreciate your expertise in this area. Um, and also, you know, your, your relentlessness in continuing to sound the alarm about complacency in this space, because I can only imagine how grinding it is to have to say the same thing over and over again. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Priya. Take care. And that was Elle Gibbs, an award-winning writer with a focus on disability and social issues, who spoke with us about systemic issues with the disability employment services model and broke down some current government approaches to disability employment in the lead-up to the September Jobs and Skills Summit. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And I'm going to play a new track for you. This one, I think, hopefully will wake you up a little bit. Um, this is No Peace by Citizen K.
and that was No Peace by Citizen K. What an absolute banger. Definitely, uh, Definitely one to get you going, because if you were falling asleep by the end of that interview, which, rude, please, please don't fall asleep while I'm having important conversations on radio, uh, hopefully that woke you up. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR, 8.55 a.m. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, worker stories and union news. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. You ready for some absolute whiplash, folks, from... No Peace by Citizen K. We're going to jump into another track. This is Of Another Kind by Winston Surfshirt featuring Milan Ring and Jerome Farah. Another, nothing can 
in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. We are just coming up to the end of the show and just before you heard Of Another Kind by Winston Surfshirt featuring Milan Ring and Jerome Farah. So on today's show, we played a segment of Dirt Radio featuring Tim from Blockade Australia talking to Isabel from Friends of the Earth about resisting Australia's climate destruction. We also heard Marissa from Do and Time interviewing Felicity about the Torch program. We heard Kel Rowe from uh, the Footy Actually show on Play on Radio, who joined us to speak about AFLW Season 7 and community sports. And finally, we heard from L. Gibbs, who spoke with us about systemic issues with disability employment services and the lead-up to the September Jobs and Skills Summit. So um, that's all we've got time for on today's show of 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast, and we'll catch you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.